You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. Randall Johnson is a screenwriter known for writing Dudes, The Doors, The Mask of Zorro, Sunset Strip, and episodes from HBO's Tales from the Crypt. We talk about a variety of topics, like how he got into screenwriting, how technology has driven changes in the industry, making a living as a writer, and what it takes to get a movie made. I hope you'll enjoy. My name is Randall Johnson. How do you primarily think of yourself? You're one of the few people I know with a Wikipedia page, so congratulations. Uh, but it says you're a writer, director, and producer. Do you identify with one of those more so than the others? I would say writer primarily. It all begins with the writing. And sometimes writing is misconstrued in the film business to a degree. It's still the germ. It's ground zero where stories start. Even though maybe you're not writing some of it down, you're, it's still writing. You're still creating the story in your mind. And then whether you're working in tandem with someone else or not, um, I still f- work that, or regard that as, as writing in a sense, even though you're maybe not putting figures down on paper or on a screen. Yeah, but it's really at the core of the creative process. It is. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so I identify more with the writing. I always wanted to be a writer. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did yeah. you get into that? I started writing as soon as I was taught how to. <laughs> Third grade, I was particularly prolific. <laughs> And uh, I had a wonderful teacher, Mrs. Oakley, and she really encouraged me to write stories. And so I started writing stories like crazy and took fourth grade off. I, I drew more in fourth grade because uh, I had a, a teacher who was a former animator for Disney. And he would let me sit in the back of the class and just and not do much else but draw. And then fifth grade, I kind of combined both. I was, I was writing stories again and then illustrating them. So I had it in my mind at somewhere that I wanted to do something visual. I wanted to be an illustrator and a storyteller. But gradually, the art stuff began to fade a little bit more or, or lose the battle. And I, and I began writing more and more. And my ambition at that time, once I got into high school, was uh, even though I always wrote fictive stories, I, the practical reality of it for me was uh, probably journalism. And actually, I had an ambition for a while to write for Rolling Stone magazine. Um, I really liked this kind of new journalism that was coming out at the time. And there were a few writers on staff there that I just I just love reading their stuff. And I loved music. So writing for Rolling Stone was going to be the cool thing. Then I started writing sports uh, for my hometown newspaper as a junior in high school. And then by my senior year, I started getting some magazine articles published. And But I still wasn't quite sold on the journalism thing yet. I went to a community college then for uh, a couple years and still worked at my newspaper to get more experience. And it was at that point that I took a uh, an introduction to the cinema class. And then I took a playwriting class also. And I had never really been exposed to either one of those areas uh, before. I mean, I loved going to movies, but it never really occurred to me. I always thought that it was like directors making this stuff up. And when I really started to realize, oh my gosh, it takes people to write movies. That's that's where I really kind of got the bug. I concentrated more on screenwriting because at that time at UCLA, we had to finance all our own advanced projects because writing paper was cheap and but back to the you know the pre-digital age i mean it you know uh, uh, you were shooting in 16 millimeter and that was a whole process you had to buy the film stock you had to get the equipment you had to process it go through a film lab you didn't know if you had the shot or not unless you had a monitor which was extremely expensive and it just it was a very very different different process back then how helpful did you think college was for your career well, it's an interesting question, especially in the this day and age, because there's so many people clamoring to get into film schools, or so many people running around with, uh, you know, really their their iPhones, and they can make a film. Like my my teenage son will shoot something, you know, during the day. He'll come home, he'll edit it, and then he'll post it on his YouTube channel by that night. When I started out, we were shooting Super Eight or Sixteen, and you know, you you would do some shots and you don't know if you got it or not until the film was 
developed and it, which was maybe five, six days later, you know, and all that. And then you had to splice it together and look and see if it cut together and all these things. Now it's just blazing fast. So there were a lot of, a lot of chimpanzees out there running around, you know, with all this equipment thinking that they're the next Steven, Steven Spielberg or JJ Abrams or whoever, and uh, there's uh, a lot of there, there, there's sort of it's it's sort of a flood tide of mediocrity that can be out there. OK. There's, and there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of really good filmmakers amongst that. So it's beca- it's becoming harder and harder to distinguish yourself. OK. And, and all this. So wrap wrap this back around to the, your question about uh, college. It's changed a lot. So you can learn. I mean, you know, again, when I entered film school, there was there were particular crafts uh, uh, or there was a craftsmanship to shooting and there still is but a lot of it now you can just get by looking at at stuff on youtube so i i almost feel that if you're going to study film or if you're, you're going to look for a career in this kind of stuff go out and kind of what you're doing meet people find stories uh, learn how to document them or learn how to dramatize them in a, in a sense but you just you almost learn by just doing it again and again and again. So make short films, make documentaries, uh, do what you're doing, interview people, go on adventures, learn a lot about life. I think that that will inform your filmmaking and bring a maturity to it that other, perhaps other kids who have just grown up in front of a screen haven't quite experienced or learned. I, I have a sort of a pet theory about a lot of this stuff, but you look at the a lot of the films that were made in America right after World War II. You know, they were made by people who had gone through the Depression, had gone through the World Wars, and there was a certain sophistication and a maturity about them that didn't. You could just tell those people knew a lot about life. And I, I, I firmly believe that that is sometimes lost in other younger filmmakers who haven't really, they, they can razzle and dazzle you with their technique, but in terms of their real experience with um, human nature and, and life. It needs kind of a soul to it. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly, that's a very succinct way of saying it. And you can, that's translatable into any art form. You can hear that. You can hear it in music. You can hear it in uh, or in someone's vocals. Uh, you can see it in someone's art, in their painting. You know, it's it's translatable into any any sort of uh, creative expression. I think. Could you? Um, are there any experiences that come to mind for you that were helpful for developing this um, in your own life? Well, just life experience, you know, getting your heart broken, you know, a, a, a couple of times. Um, yeah, what did you do to, like, get out there? I was a genre guy to begin with. You know, I, I loved horror stories and ghost stories and things like that. And, and then I loved history. And so I would actually seek out and meet people who had, had experienced things in life that I thought were really amazing to kind of find out what they knew and what their experiences were. And I was always very, very curious. And I, I think that was part of the thing that was fueling me as to, to be a possible journalist. So a lot of that drove me to find out stories uh, or, or if I had the notion of a story or even if it was something that I had to research. It was, uh, for example, I had to do, uh, I was hired many years ago to write an adaptation on um, or not an adaptation, a, a story about the inventor uh, Nikola Tesla. And well, Tesla is long gone, and the, and the New York and the world that he lived in is long gone. So I had to recreate it, you know, in a way, in my imagination. So I, you know, I barely got through high school science, and I'm suddenly surrounding myself with all these like technical books from the 1890s about, you know, the fledgling power of electricity and the differences between AC uh, current and DC current and uh, what what Thomas Edison and, and George Westinghouse were fighting over and what Tesla was demonstrating and showing. And, but I researched the hell out of it, and I felt like I came away with a fundamental understanding. And therefore, I knew, I knew the challenges, and I knew... Uh, I felt confident in a way of how I was going to visualize this kind of story. 
a large part of that story was the war between Edison and Tesla. Yeah, and Edison was, you know, dug in with DC, had committed to DC current, and Tesla was committed to AC current and had the backing of George Westinghouse. And it was the this incredible battle in America. What kind of power was going to run America? It's called the War of the Currents, you know. And so it was a big part of the uh, of the story. And and as a result, I mean, I came out of this and like I had a greater understanding of industrial America, you know, and and the powers and capitalism and all that. But uh, uh, it fueled me a lot. So I dove really lost myself in a lot of that kind of research, and I love doing that. Um, so, and I've done that on, on a number of projects. Um, and, and even if I'm writing about something nowadays where whoever it is that I'm writing about is still alive or the world that they, you know, or the, the story, the elements of the story is still around, I try to get into it and I ask questions and I meet experts and so that I can become expert, have an expert knowledge of it. So that, therefore I can expertly communicate it as a, as sort of a vision. What was the name of the uh, Tesla thing you were working on? Um, I uh, I called it Wired, or no, no, not Wired, uh, Wireless. Uh, this is back in 1990. Okay, um, it was originally going to be a, a project for David Lynch, um, and then David Lynch got the green light to do uh, Twin Peaks and uh, went off and did that, and so. Um, uh, so we didn't actually have a director on it, but I continued. Uh, I was I was paid by the studio to write it for Warner Brothers, and uh, it was never made, but it's in the vaults there at, at, at Warner Brothers, and they never give anything up, but it, it garnered me a lot of work because, because people read the screenplay, and they liked how it was done, and so that opened doors for me again and again. Um, yeah, that seems like kind of a trend. One, I mean, it seems like curiosity is a real theme for you and your life and your work. Totally. And then uh, it seems it seems like the general arc of like a creative career is like you make something and you just like make things until you're good at making things. It's all it's pretty mysterious to me. Like I have no idea how this works. It's very mysterious to me too. It still is. I teach a lot now. I see a lot of myself in these young students, but they're wrestling with creativity and and they and they keep looking for some kind of like magic formula that will. I'll explain it all very carefully, you know, uh, clearly to them. And that just doesn't exist. Uh, creativity doesn't cooperate like that. You know, it's very mysterious. It comes to you sometimes in pieces, you know, and you have to, you have to take these pieces and put them into a, into a, uh, an arrangement in which um, it works, it fits. And sometimes you have to get rid of some things. Sometimes you're just handed a seed and that, and out of that will will actually blossom, sprout, and blossom something that will uh, it, it, that you couldn't have anticipated when you first got it. Okay, but it takes so it, it's almost like you have to um, <laughs> uh, exercise a spidey sense to borrow something from Spider Man. You know, your spidey sense to, in this to to recognize there's something here. I don't know what it is yet, but there's something here, and to trust it. There's an element of trust in, that comes into creativity as well that uh, a lot of people don't trust their inner voices and because it's not tangible. It's not something that's palpable. And this gets into a larger thing about creativity and, and in creating art and essentially just creating something out of nothing. I feel really strongly about that that those that work in the creative arts are undervalued, you know, by and large, especially in the eyes of corporate America. Uh, and and so it's something that needs to really be nurtured and supported as best it can. Um, but we also, as artists and stuff, it's important to be tough with ourselves and be disciplined, and because uh, no one is necessarily going to come come running to us and say, oh, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, it's, it's a battle. You have to go out there and prove yourself again and again. My story is worth telling. My project is worth viewing. My project is worthwhile, and it will contribute, and it will entertain people. And even entertaining people for um, two hours or something like that is, can be a meaningful and significant 
uh, activity. So I believe in what we do, but it is, it's hard for a lot of people to understand, especially if they don't work in any kind of business that creativity is a factor. So I, I feel that a lot of times as artists, you know, we're, there's a, there's a shamanistic quality to it in which the, you know, a lot of times we have to, we, we go into the spirit world <laughs> and we, we have to kind of collect these, these weird little floating things that are, or, or, and we have these great adventures or whatever. And then we, we, we emerge from that experience and from that world, uh, with a whole collection of stuff. And then we have to take that stuff and fuel it and create it and give it shape and then so that it's presentable to most of the rest of our tribe you know <laughs> and and we inter- we can interpret a lot of things we can interpret the signs we can interpret uh uh, we can bring stories via parable and that will help inform uh, people to maybe make choices moral instruction entertainment laugh but also can teach and instruct you know um it's all this kind of stuff <laughs> there was a rabbit hole i crawled into but uh. so this is something i was just curious about say you want to write a screenplay or like that seems like an attractive career option for you how do you even go about that yeah well uh well there's no first of all there's no one saying you can't uh, unless it's a voice in your head and, or somebody else who says, you know, you can't do it. It's a, uh, you're wasting your time. Um, you start by simply starting. Uh, one of the ways, you know, certainly you can watch some, you can take a master class online from somebody like David Mamet or, or you know, a great, great writer. Um, you can uh, see a ton of movies. And then you can buy some so- uh, screenwriting software and you can some buy uh, or find some free uh, on the internet. But it is a, a sort of specific format that you have to adhere to. But essentially, it's just taking a story and, and putting it in such a way that um, can be filmed and be, be recorded uh, nowadays. But it helps to have a little experience in terms of what what is the nature of drama and, and all that. Um, drama means conflict, you know. So that means a character has a problem. Um, that character might want something, but there is something there is an obstacle that is preventing that character from getting what he or she wants. And sometimes what he or she wants is different from what they actually need. Okay. And that's uh, then that brings up questions that where does conflict come from? Does it come from inside us or does it come from external forces or all it comes from conflict comes from all over? So screenwriters, you learn to look for conflict everywhere, you know, um, and uh, just you don't make it easy for your hero because your hero has to endure things and uh and because we identify with our heroes and it's important for us to see how they cope how they deal with adversity how they deal with all these obstacles and uh the other thing is too is that we're in a paradigm now where it is recognized that no one is perfect and that includes your heroes they're enormously flawed people. In the last 20 years, we've seen enormously flawed uh, anti-heroes, uh, if you will, on television and in the movies. Um, it's no longer the white hats, black hats kind of uh, days that were that popul- uh, populated the 1950s westerns and stuff. It's different now because we, we all recognize everyone is flawed. Everyone is human. And that's what makes them partly so relatable. I have a problem just like that guy. I, I, you know, I'm going to watch and see what he does because he's giving me great inspiration to go and face another day. So anyway, back to your story. How does one go about so, it? So yeah, like once know, it's I mean, written, once it's written, what do you do? Yeah. Well, that is the big, that is the big thing. Now, when I, 
when I got out of film school back in early 1980s, 1982, in fact, it was a completely different entertainment business then. And it was primarily film. Um, And I could be sent out on a meeting and I would come into a room, not unlike this, and I would sit down with several executives and, and they might have the rights of a, to a novel or something, or they want to interview me for, to do a rewrite on a screenplay, or they're interested in a screenplay that I wrote about Tesla, and they want to find out if they really want to buy it or not. But it would be simply, you know, you go in and you have a sit-down meeting, and they get a, you get a feel for one another, and then a deal is usually brokered then by your representatives, your agent, and ultimately your lawyer. On the phone, you talked about being good in a room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that. That was another thing too. Where sometimes, um, I mean, and and this is the way it is nowadays. Uh, still, um, you have to be able to to articulate your story as uh, well and to do it um, uh, cogently and go right to uh, a very very brief synopsis about it. And it's what we call the elevator pitch. And the, the metaphor is is you you get you you you're in a a business building, you step into the elevator and there's Brad Pitt and you have Brad Pitt's undivided attention for about two minutes as you ride from the 10th floor down to the bottom floor or vice versa, right? Yeah, these so, people must hate elevators. Yeah, I think they do. That's why they have private private elevators in some of the studios or, or places like that. But, but essentially, you know, you have to be able to tell your story and you don't tell them the whole story. What's your story about? Well, it's about my very first script that I wrote out of film school. I wrote a script about a haunted highway, a stretch of highway that was haunted by a guy who was killed on it in 1962 when he was drag racing. Okay. I don't tell them the whole story. That's what it's about. Okay. And no, because they, they supply all the questions. Exactly. Like, well, how'd that happen? Like, how's it haunted? How do people die on this highway? Right. And you have to have those answers and be prepared for those questions. But you don't necessarily have to tell them all about it right now. Um, so people get really uptight uh, about their pitching. And, and, and usually the people whom you are pitching to, and they're usually entities or representatives of the money Okay, the companies that have the money to to do these stories, they have very limited time and very limited attention spans. And believe me, they have heard it all. So they don't want to hear the story from beginning to end. They want a very cogent, what is it about? Who are the characters? And what is the conflict? You know, really, what are the stakes? Um, if there's no conflict in your story, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. It was a beautiful sunny day. They collected butterflies. They got their water and they went back down, you know, down the hill. Okay, gee, I'm, I'm asleep already. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jill pushed Jack into the well, uh, uh, scampered back down the hill to collect the will. Um, but Jack didn't die. He stayed down there with the bats and slowly crawled up out of the out of the well and vowed revenge on Jill. Um, and that's the movie. Uh, you know, that's much more, you know, kind of what it's about, right? Okay, so now I get that. That's conflict. There's there's drama there. Okay. I'm gonna listen a bit more. So there's, you have that kind of thing going. But basically, you got to be able to tell it, tell it quickly and then leave it up to those who are, uh, that you're pitching to, to ask the questions. And if they're interested, they will start asking questions. And they will know within 30 seconds, maybe a minute of whatever it is you're talking about, they are going to know whether it's something that they're going to be interested in or not. You have about that much time. And that doesn't mean you freeze up or anything, or I hope they like me, I hope they like me. No, you can't take it personally like that. Because sometimes you might be pitching a war movie when all they're interested in are rom-coms, okay? Or they're interested in in horror, and you're out there pitching a historical, uh, you know... uh, Well, yeah, their whole institution is designed to handle, like, one particular kind of thing they've got. Like these, they they've got relationships with these actors. Like, right. let's not put Seth, let's not put put Seth Rogen and the war movie, <laughs> unless it's a funny war movie. Like, right, right. 
a lot, and, and a lot of the times the the decision making is partly through committee. Okay, it's it's a team of people making up. Uh, I mean, ultimately it will come down to somebody saying, "Okay, yes, I I do that." But I mean, you're hearing, let's say, you're hearing from Brad Pitt, who really wants to do it. Brad Pitt is, we know, worldwide a star. He's guaranteed maybe so many millions dollars, okay? But they have an algorithm in terms of relative to budget. Like Brad Pitt's low-budget films don't do as well as his high-budget films. But his high-budget films are high-budget films, so we're going to have to pay him his salary for that. We're going to have to you know, pay for all the special effects and this story better be really good, so they're going to mitigate their chances for failure. So there's like a money ball to this. Oh, completely, completely. Oh yeah, yeah. And this is what you're fighting against all the time. And, and what do you mean fighting against? Well, because oftentimes what you're what you're facing are, and this goes down to even to a very very basic level in which that it's about marketing. Okay. Um, okay. There's Brad Pitt in this new movie. It's an action film. Great. Or it's a domestic drama. Okay. Great. But if you combine a domestic drama with an action horror thing, people get confused. Okay. And 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 studios get really uncomfortable because they can't quite market it truly. Okay. What is it? Is it a is it a horror film or is it a domestic drama? You know, I they they can't and and they feel like it has to be pigeonholed and so and that way it's easier to market. Okay. Oh great. Oh good. It's so good to know that this is a true horror film and this is what we're gonna. So when people complain about the same movies just getting made over and over, like this is why. Is this Partly, part of yeah, why? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a tried and true formula. Okay. If we make the new DC or Marvel, you know, uh, uh, thing. We're not going to try to reinvent the wheel. We don't want to fix what ain't broken. If we go ahead and do this, we slam certain char- uh, actors into it. We know, because historically, we've gone right down the list here. A movie like this will guarantee, you know, seventy-five million dollars opening weekend worldwide. Okay, and that then is probably going to play out to maybe $225 million all said and done worldwide. You know, so they have all these these projections and all of that. And then they they factor in all, all these things. They know how they're going to market it. They know how it's going to. So if you do anything, and oftentimes this is against, you know, all the creatives from the directors to the actors to the writers, especially no, 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 don't settle for, you know, this hackneyed same old thing again and again. Um, uh, The studios get very, very nervous because it diverges from something. You're adding uh, something to the salami sandwich that, you know, if you're adding jalapeno peppers into that salami sandwich, a lot of people may not like that. It's going to give them indigestion, right? So, they don't want you to do that. But we're saying, no, it needs some jalapenos. It needs something to spice it up. This is what's going to make it unique. And they get very uncomfortable with that. So it's this outside is part, of that model. It's outside the model and it's outside their, their relative comfort zone and their margins for success and failure. So this is, this is the kind of thing that in the past, it's been just strictly a studio, one studio that's been that would be uh, would have this all worked out. It is now so corporatized; it's much more. Uh, you don't know where the orders are coming from, so it's difficult and it's hard. So the the, the kind of the joke is: is that we yes, we want you to reinvent the wheel, but make it keep it familiar. <laughs> so okay, the most advanced yet acceptable. Have you- it's. Totally. It's very much so the case. You know, uh, it, it takes something to uh, become an anomalous runaway hit, something that just comes out of left field that ends up being there. And then suddenly everybody shifts to that and they want to make the next version of that. OK, borrowing from that formula or getting that director or getting the creatives that were behind it on on their team now. But but the big difference now is 
the shift away from motion pictures to television. And this has really been only in the last few years, and it's really we we're, we it started with the with the, the economic collapse in two thousand seven two thousand eight, uh, where the studios then started losing uh, they 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 just lost all their funding, and uh, then with the advent of streaming and all the digital technology now, it just has completely altered how the business is. And a lot of people are whining about whine about it to some degree, and there could be, and I could make an argument. Well, gee, man, I'm the, I'm not working it like I once did in the film industry because the film industry is in free fall. But you know, changes like this come along uh, fairly regularly in the motion picture business. We're a little over a hundred years old now, and about every twenty years or so, there is a game changer. Okay, films get longer. You know, they started out really just short. There was like, you know, the silent YouTube way back in with the old Nickelodeons. And then, you know, then they started making uh, dramatic things. And then they started expanding to feature length by, you know, the mid-teens. And then uh, sound came. Wait, what is a Nickelodeon? Okay, I feel like you're not talking about the channel. Oh, no, 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 not, yeah. Uh, So an old, uh, in the old days, um, it was like an arcade where you would go and watch short films and you would, you would drop a penny into it or a nickel and you would like pre-theater. Oh yeah. And you would just crank and you would look through a viewer and you would see a street scene in Paris. Moving or, picture. Yeah. Motion okay. picture. Yeah. Um, and that's all they were. And that's what I was saying. It was like YouTube. It was like people showing off their horses or, um, uh, you know, people who had never left their farm to get a view of downtown San Francisco or New York. And they, it, it blew them away, you know, so that they would, so they would set up these little arcades and people would come in and they would, that's all they would do is to view these kinds of things. So it's almost like with, with the advent of YouTube when it first came about, we had come full circle. Okay. It seems like about 20, every 20 years or so things changed. So we had the advent of sound. And then when sound came, then it became color pictures. And then after color pictures, then, then television came along. So where do you see the industry going moving forward? Well, this is what everyone's scratching their heads about because it's moving incredibly rapidly. Um, I think we're heading into some area now where we may be stabilizing for a little bit. But technology is just advancing so rapidly, it's hard to say. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to see so much good television being done. Um, and the long, and in since long-form storytelling has not gone away it's it's grown it's expanded you know when we're seeing like limited series things like like fargo and 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 whatnot um there it's when the series ends and you know it's going to end because there's only 10 episodes right you know but it feels like after you've watched it you've read a really good novel okay it's you know and we never quite had that cinematically before Okay, because when if you're taking War and Peace and trying to put it, turn it into a motion picture, you got to squeeze it into about two to three hours max. Something's got to go. But with this longer form now, and I mean, well, Game of Thrones is still is is, is such a phenomenon, but it's expanding in a sense, and it 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 is a world and with dynamic characters that compels people to just to watch just like they would be turning a page in a in a in a book so i am very excited to see all this streaming isn't going away that that genie's out of the bottle so we don't know it, it the one of the negative sides of all the digital advancements though is this is that it has devalued uh, historically um, the 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 gigs or the the pay scales of all the craftspeople who work in motion pictures and and or television, um, and because so many more are doing it, and there, there there are access points all over the place now where it used to be only through the gates of Hollywood or New York maybe, and in two or three years' time, it's going to be an entirely different landscape again because Apple is coming to the table. YouTube is now developing original content. And, and fictional content. Um, there, there's talk that Facebook is going to uh, get into that act as well. Um, and 
uh, we're going to see, continue to see, uh, there'll be entities now that we don't even have a concept about yet that are going to come together and they're going to be in the negotiating room. Like a couple months ago, I was talking to like a coworker of mine about Netflix and like, as like investable companies. And uh, something we were both concerned about was that we might be in like a content bubble. Like there's so much good content, like no one can even watch ever of it. But what you're kind of saying is like, we ain't seen nothing yet. Cause like if <laughs> all these new players are just starting to get into it. I mean, look, who can keep up, you know? I mean, and you really, you, you really have to pick what, what kind of thing you're, you're going to want. But it can get way more insane from here even. I, I, I think it can, and it probably will. And the notion of a content bubble, that's, that's really interesting. It may, I, I can see that happening. I'm not saying that it will. Um, no one has a crystal ball for any of that stuff, but, uh, let's say it does and it just kind of blows up. What's going to happen then? Where do we pick up the pieces? Where does it go? Well, I'll tell you that still that, you know, there, there may be a, a period of adjustment, but look what happened in the, in the, the film industry, the entertainment in, or film and television always look at the music industry because that was uh, historically, they've always kind of been the first to suffer something like this. Yeah. So initially it was Napster that was doing, you know, had the issues that were, were going on. And, and that that was then and we saw the decline of the, uh, the traditional record companies. Um, and then uh, now we've they've come back. Then we had iTunes and Spotify. And now we have all the streaming services that are out there. And now they're looking like, you know, kind of maybe some musicians are starting to make some money again. But. It's still about getting in a van and going out and, and touring and selling merchandise. Uh, that's, that's the way they're going to do it. But, you know, is, uh, so what is film and television, what uh, cable, what's going to happen there? You know, music was able to pull it together. People still wanted music and they still wanted it for their devices. So people will still want their stories. But it's almost like you make a TV show so that you could sell T-shirts with the TV shows, like characters on them or something. Rick and Morty, you know, or something like that. Yeah, yeah no, these, I mean, uh, there's, the characters really go viral. <laughs> where I, f I feel like m probably more people have seen the characters like Rick and Morty than have seen the TV show. Which <laughs> <I know. laughs> is like a pretty well done, like whoever's doing their marketing. is. Well, that's, <laughs> that's right. You know, I mean, that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, that's really nailed that's it. It's like a dream come true. Right? Yeah. Um, can we circle back around? Um, sure. So asking about the process of like how you get your script into like the right hands and yeah. how you get paid with that. Um, how do you, like, how would you go about getting yourself into like the right elevator? Like how do you get it? How do you go about yeah. that? Well, the elevators are changing, you know, certainly. Uh, it used to be the gates to the, to the studios or the networks. Those are changing now. Um, and because we have Netflix and, you know, and a lot of times, I mean, these companies are so new, no one quite knows who's in charge. Can you like, would you just like email people at random? Well, or? well, um, the agents are starting to figure it out now. I mean, it, it, and they're, they're figuring out how to get to the, to the sort of the new gatekeepers. But uh, there are other ways to get noticed. So let's let's go back to okay. You're you've just written a screenplay. You're very proud of it. You worked really hard on it. Uh, what do you try to do? Well, what if you live in Poughkeepsie or Des Moines, Iowa, or someplace anywhere other than know, L.A. Right. Well, because the internet is the internet now, you can submit your script for any number of online screenwriting contests. And or you can uh, submit it to certain groups and you will get professional feedback. But that isn't necessarily going to get you much. Uh, you might get some interesting notes, okay? And let's say you go ahead and incorporate some of the notes and you do another version of your screenplay. Then what do you do? Well, again, you're looking for um, uh, uh, online screen screenwriting contests. And there's a lot of them. And some of them are crappy and some of them are, are very well respected like it's like austin and sundance and 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 uh a blue cat and the nickels um through ucla i think are, are through the academy um these are well respected enough so that if you place high enough that's that's serious street cred 
in that in that sense. If you come back and you're in like the top five or the top ten of you know twenty thousand submissions or more of in some of these, um, that's saying something. So in this new paradigm now, power brokers in the agencies they're paying attention to what's going on online now as well. So they're starting to troll all these screenwriting contests. Yeah, so who, who are the people that really have the control in this situation? Or who are the people to please? It still comes down to agents, I think, agents, and then, and or possibly, you know, festival people or, or going directly to uh, a talent, an actor. So what, what gives each of those groups their power? Like, what, what makes agents? Access. You know, agents, agents and managers have access. They have a Rolodex, be it a figurative or a literal one. They have like you know? Steven Spielberg's home number or something. Absolutely. That's what Absolutely. It, it comes down you know, to. Is really yeah. You sign with me. You've written this great science fiction story. Great. Okay. You sign with me and it, it won at Austin. It, it won the Nichols. Okay. Great. Sign with me and I will make sure it gets to Steven Spielberg. He'll be reading it tomorrow. Joe Blow over here can't do that for you, okay? You can't do that on your own. You need me to have access to J.J. Abrams or to Steven Spielberg or to Brad Pitt or to George Clooney or anything, okay? You need me to get you in the room to where you're going to be genius at Netflix or to YouTube Red, okay? You need me to do this I because they listen to me. Because they know they know me, they like me, they know my client list, and they know my taste. And I have sold half a dozen projects to them already, and they know that I'm a guy that gets them. Okay. Yeah, that's how that works. So uh, now different agencies are going to offer and promise different things. And one of the great sort of savvy lessons one will learn in the entertainment business is they lie. <laughs> they can't always guarantee and or promise that what they say uh, at that initial signing is going to happen. Okay. Agencies will do all sorts of interesting things to, to impress you. You know, they'll usher you into a room like this and they'll bring in 12 different agents to all sit around and just think, hey, we all read your script. We love you. We want you to come here because if you come here, every one of us is going to be out there shouting your name and getting you into rooms. Okay. That's not going to happen. There's going to be one agent who's going to be your lead agent. And it becomes, and then it becomes a um, a sort of uh, it's a flavor of the month kind of thing. So yeah, you've great you've written a great script. We've signed you. We we sell it for a million dollars, and now and then then it's a question. Okay, of what next? Well, okay, J.J. Uh, Abrams needs a rewrite on another script of his. We're going to slot you in on that. Okay, and show that you can rewrite stuff. Okay. Um, and then we want you working on a new project. And then do you have any television? Because actually television, cable, is where agencies really make their money because it, it continues to churn, 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 churn. It's a machine that rolls, especially if you go into multiple seasons, you know, um, and it plays again and again and again on other networks after its initial run. See, the, net, the, the agencies are always going to be taking 10% of that. Okay. Recurring. Yeah. Whereas a motion, one large motion picture, it's a nice, it's a prestigious thing. It's cool. Okay. But it's a one-time thing. It's a resume plug yeah. more than anything else. Yeah. yeah. That's, good. That's exactly it. So, so anyway, the, one of the things you, that, that you have to learn and, and realize is that at some point you're not going to have that hot spec. If you're fortunate enough to even get in uh, there, you know, and have that hot spec screenplay um, that has won all these contests. Um, at some point you're going to be another writer 
that is on the roster, okay? And you're just, they're going to look at you as just trying to be, this is another mouth I have to feed, okay? And they're going to be hounding you to like, hey, write something else, write something new. I got to sell you. You got to come up with something new. And if you write something that flops, and suddenly your stock starts going down, okay? And if you write two flops in a row, Oh boy, suddenly that phone isn't ringing like it once was. And all those agents in that room there at that one time who just said, Oh, we love you. You're fantastic. They're not returning your call as much as because they're too busy catering now to the other new kid who just wrote the new greatest uh, offbeat uh, rom com and everybody's, you know, surrounding her now. Okay. Um, so that's what I mean about like it, the business can be streaky. So if you're a home run hitter and you're hitting it and you're hitting it, man, you know, people love you and they want it. But boy, you go into a slump. That's where it gets tough. And that's the question you always want to ask an agent if you're going to look, if you're being wooed by by multiple agents at, at any given time. That's great. Okay. It's real easy for you to be there for me when I'm doing great and we're making a lot of money. But what happens when I'm not? What is your plan for shoring up some kind of disaster or where my stock falls, where I make a shitty movie, uh, write one, and it's no fault of my own. It was still a really good script, but the director messed it up or somebody else came in and rewrote it. How are you going to fix that? What are you going to do? And these are legitimate questions for you to ask of your potential representative. And sometimes they say, oh, it won't be a problem. Oh, man, we love you. you know, they lie, 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 lie. <laughs> We've never point. had a single person go through a single like, oh, down period. It's all fantastic. <laughs> so in your own career, uh, what are some things that worked really well for you? Well, uh, I, okay, I, here's sort of a tale of two writers, okay? Uh, my roommate and I, um, I had, uh, there were three of us living in an apartment in Westwood, and we were all at UCLA film school at that time. Uh, one of my roommates was a guy named Greg Wyden, who wrote um, a movie called Highlander, the, the Highlander. And that went on to become a very big hit. The one that I've seen? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I would think so, you know. Um, in, in fact, I proofread the first draft of it <laughs> in, our, in our table, in our, our, you know, in our kitchen uh, of the apartment in Westwood. And anyway, that spawned, you know, many sequels, TV series, lots of different things. Greg gets a piece of that. You know, every time he also wrote um, a movie called Backdraft, which was directed by Ron Howard. And it was all about fire and fire fires. OK. Um, and it uh, for a while, I don't know if it's still there or not, um, was a, a ride and attraction at the Universal uh, Studios tour. Yeah, no, I was probably like 10 or something at the time. But oh yeah, like one of my friends. Um, a, his parents let him watch the movie. I, I don't even know the reason I wasn't allowed to watch it. Uh -huh. But B, like he, he, like his family went on a trip there and he got to go on the ride. And I was yeah. like, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, guess what? By going on that ride, you put uh, a few cents into Greg's pocket because he was one of the very first, if not the first, that actually collected on an amusement park ride that was based on his original IP. Crazy. Was, yeah. So, um, do you get to own your IP as a writer? No, not always. You can and cannot. It depends on the circumstances. If it was your idea from the very beginning, which Backdraft was, uh, you could do it. You had that leverage. Um, if you, as a as a screenwriter, were adapting an underlying or pre-existing material, uh, a, like if a I write novel, a Hulk movie or something. That the Hulk was created by somebody else. You've written a screenplay that contributed to the mythos of it, um, but you didn't create, you know, the original creator or his estate or her estate will get a percentage of that. But uh, you will be paid a one-time off and uh, a salary for it. And you will get residuals for your particular movie, uh, but you will not get a 
piece of Hulk for but like ever. St- Stan Lee of Marvel do. Comics gets everything like down, he's downstream of everything, right? Oh yeah. Okay. So. Stan Stan ain't missing any meals. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And and you know, God bless. Okay. Yeah. So uh, to continue with okay. your story. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So anyway, the tale of two writers is that that in the sense that uh, when Greg and I were. It was always funny because uh, we, when we first started writing, Greg, I was writing on a manual Smith Corona typewriter, which was very noisy. Greg wrote on a, on a, on a electric, an electric typewriter, which also was pretty noisy. Nothing compared to computer. So if there was any kind of downtime, you know, Mad Magazine, right? You know, Spy versus Spy. Um, there was, you know, I, whenever you're trying to rest or relax and you hear somebody else typing away, you're just going, ah, curses, somebody's working and I'm not, you know, and I just, oh, there was, there was a kind of a com- uh, competition that was always going on with that. Anyway, Greg, uh, Greg has, has enjoyed tremendous success off of the Highlander backdraft and then the prophecy and some other things that he's done. If you, and, and they continue. Like one, is one movie enough to set someone up for life? Probably not. You know, I mean, it, it would have to be a huge, huge movie. There might be, you know, like an E.T. That's, you know, that level. Jaws, E.T., um, you know, certainly Star Wars, but that spawned a whole. But generally, thing. no. But generally, no. Uh, but, it, you know, I mean, if you invest well, you know, uh, and, and all that, um, you know, I guess it's possible. But it's got to be a mega evergreen hit, you know, for like. And then something like E.T. was. You know, so you can you can do that. Um, but could he have retired off of backdraft? Probably not. Well, he could have. Yes, after the universal ride kicked in. Yes, yes, um, probably could. Um, so anyway, then for me, you know, I was uh, I wrote, but a lot uh, the original material that I wrote was original material, and it was not. Uh, it did not become a franchise or they didn't make sequels or whatever. And that was not really interesting to me anyway. I mean, I, I, was, I certainly would have loved it. Um, but I was, uh, I was always kind of moving on to the next, next sort of project. And I was motive for me, I was more motivated about what the project was. What could I bring to it? Did I find it interesting? And not to say that that wasn't the case with Greg either, Greg always had very commercial ideas and, 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 and whatever, but his stuff continues to sort of pay again and again. And he again. was lucky in the things that he liked happened to be very lucrative. They turned out to be very lucrative. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, and I don't think, I mean, for example, right now, even like, uh, uh, Outlander, which is a, you know, very successful, um, series. It's kind of a female Highlander. Uh, in, in a way, it's a woman who moves through time in a, in a sense, in a lot of, uh, and it's in the Scottish Highlands. And I, I don't think that story could have been created if Highland, the Highlander, hadn't been done, you know, many many years before, and might have had an impact on uh, on the woman who created it, uh, or whatever. But um, so it's it's just interesting how you know one thing sort of inspires and informs another, and another, and all that, all that. Uh, um, so, uh, this was wrapping kind of around, I forget what Tale of Two Writers. Yeah. So this guy strikes gold on his like first yeah, two. Yeah. And you know, um, I, I still, you know, you, you mentioned the gig economy. I mean, that's what it is. Uh, I'm still, he, he struck gold several times over in the sense of, so I'm still like, I'm a nomad, you know, I go from gig to gig to gig and the films that I have written and have been uh, made, um, you know, I still get I get residuals on them, but they're not what what they once were, and uh, so I'm you know I'm still out there schlepping and looking for work and uh, and writing my own material still as well. Um, I think, but Greg doesn't have to do that, but he does. He still works and still writes, and he teaches a lot as well. Uh, two weeks ago, they they had a screening in Hollywood of The Doors, which I I wrote back in 1986. And yeah, that was it was fun to see up on the big screen there, and I did a Q and A afterwards at the theater. But again, I mean, it, that was a long time ago when I wrote it. But that's a movie that that has 
because Oliver Stone directed it and and then rewrote me, but we share credit on it. Um, that has a, a it has a shelf life that has continued to uh, go on. And then The Mask of Zorro was another one of mine that I uh, read. But then the very first film that I wrote is a this thing called Dudes, which is a punk rock western. He um, got a very very limited release, but has kind of kind of uh, turned into a sort of a cult has a cult following and it's never been released on dvd until next month it's going to be out on dvd and it came out in 1987 so we're looking forward to that um but you know these things have a you know once you create something it has an afterlife or shelf life that just continues to oftentimes to to uh still give (laughs) yeah that's interesting so do you think you'll ever retire from this work well or um I don't like the word retire. You know, it, it it's not very proactive. Is it doesn't scale back better or nah, no? I'm not interested in scaling back necessarily. I, I like what I do. Um, I'm teaching now, but I still love telling stories. And I'm very interested in visual storytelling on all, in all forms. I particularly love graphic novels and and illustration and uh, and there's lots of hybrids almost like coming up now as well. So, and shorter content is becoming more relevant than ever. Uh, so, when you were asking even back, you know, if you've written a screenplay, what do you do with it? Well, I would say, okay, great, great, you've written that sh- that, that screenplay, that long form screenplay, but go out and make a short film now. Okay, go out and actually make it, or find someone who you can make it with, because. It's really important to be able to not only show, hey, here, read this. I wrote this. Okay. Not everyone has a couple of hours to sit down and cozy up with a 100-page screenplay. You know, almost those days are almost gone, but it's still important to have one of those. It's like this. Hey, um, check this out. This is a a short film I did. Uh, It's on Hulu or it's on YouTube or it's on Vimeo. And uh, you were a big inspiration for me for this and i think it really shows it and it's won several of these contests or whatever it's two minutes long boom take a look would at you it. make the short film even before finishing like the long form script this is happening quite a bit um they're using a short form as a thing as almost like a proof of concept for the long form and they and, kind of figure out the rest <clears throat> as they go well yes and no um sometimes they're they're they do it as a companion piece it's separate but related to the long form thing, so it might introduce you to the world, but it's not the it's not the main story that the longer piece would do. But it would be a sort of a like a short story that would be that's in the world that introduces you to it and can, and it, it's really about selling you as a talent as a storyteller. Okay, it's like a calling card. So instead of having this little business card say please call me, no, here see my short film on YouTube. Um, or my channel on YouTube, uh, right? And uh, you can see that I've done documentaries, I've done shorts, I've done comedy skits. Um, you know, I'm all over the map. I'm creative. You've got to hire me. Yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about what your son is doing? Sure. He's a very talented kid. He's a senior in high school right now. He's 17. He's not exactly sure what he wants to do. At first, it was going to be filmmaking, and and I have to say, he's a very gifted editor. Um, he's a pretty darn good director and they, and he gets together on a regular base with, uh, basis with, um, oh, there's three, four, five close friends of his and they're all, they're all musicians and actors and, uh, uh, movie makers. And they just love getting together and making themselves laugh. And they'll do these quirky, funny little short films or these parodies of things or whatever. And they, they'll go out, they shoot the stuff, um, they cut it together, and they put it on their, their YouTube channels. So they each have their own YouTube channel. He's also getting very interested in making music. And so he composes music now on Ableton on his computer. He's learnt, teaching himself how to play bass off of YouTube lessons, okay? I said, don't you want to take lessons? He said, no, I just got it right here on YouTube. I can get everything I need on base. And so he just sits there and practices. Why would I drive anywhere? Yeah, exactly. Getting him even to drive is like a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing as well, right? And he's half of a DJ duo. So together they're, they, 
they do a few gigs around town. They've done different different uh, stuff, but it's a lot of EDM. And then they're, they're composing music. And so he's developing an ear and an interest and a curiosity for for creating music, not in a traditional sense, but in sort of in their own own way. And they're very prolific about it. Um, and then uh, he he's this is leading now to sort of a, an interest in sound design. Uh, for films, and uh, and are possibly uh, getting in a recording studio and working with bands and recording musicians and and music production, and then on top of it is he is uh, uh, an interest in still photography and he's quite good at that. He's developing on so he's got a um, he's taking a web design course now and of course that's bringing it all. So he's a digital native speaker. There's no doubt about that. He's very facile with it and very very quick. And this is the thing about all you all you guys, man. No, well that's the thing. Um, so I taught um, at a high school like for like a year after, out of college yeah. and uh, so I was teaching like freshmen in high school. And I felt like a dinosaur. All this technology is is happening and happening very rapidly. At the core of it, there's still we're, we're still drawn to stories, and the art of telling those stories um, with involving characters, flawed characters, uh, funny characters, you know, these w- weird predicaments, and the, having the imagination to create a a ongoing story is something that's. Uh, uh, that won't change. Right. It's deeply human. Yeah. And it's deeply, that's exactly, that's a really good way of saying it. It's deeply human. It's a need. We need to have, be able to do that. What sort of concerns me and what I, what I don't want to see lost is, is that kind of human connection, that understanding. That's how it, so I, I'm real curious to see where it goes. But this brings up a question then when you were wrapping this back around about retire. You know, um, I'm getting longer in the tooth, so I'm this gray-bearded guy, you know, and a lot of people are, like, looking at me like, well, what, what can you teach me about social media or, you know, techniques or this or that? And, you know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing sort of fight now for somebody like me to still remain relevant. So my last question. Yes. I've already take, kept you way longer oh, that's, than that's we a, originally planned on. No um, worries. So do you have a favorite book you recommend to people what about the craft of what i do or just let's go yeah let's go with one about the craft and then one that you just personally really like uh robert mckee's story that is um i haven't read it from cover to cover because i just don't like to do this and i'm always suspect of books that say this is you know on page 34 you got to have the reversal character reversal and this and they really reduce reduce it to a particular formula and I'm not a fan of that, but Robert McKee's story has a lot of good things to say. Um, I think that's uh, that's a good one. And there's another book called Screenwriting: colon, The Sequence Approach that uh, is worth looking into as well. Apart from that, uh, in in terms of books that have influenced me and and stuff, um, Oh, uh, three books just immediately come to mind. One is a book called Geek Love. It was written by a woman named Catherine Dunn who lived here in Portland, and she just passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, Geek Love, I read that in college, and uh, it was just a type of narrative that I just, uh, it was about sideshow uh, circus freaks, um, a family of them. Okay, and I just, uh, I, I just loved it. I just thought it was really, uh, it, it, it humanized these, uh, these people who were really in the margins. You know, um, I like that a lot. I loved another book called Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. It was one of his very first books that, uh, um, it's particularly violent, but it's a, it's a real it's sort of a, a period a historical piece that is really, really good. And then uh, as one of my all-time favorites, though, is The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury, which is not exactly a novel, but it's a collection of, of sort of, of tone poems and, and, and short stories and such. Uh, and there's one particular story in there called And the Moon and May the Moon Be Still as Bright, that uh, that short story really, really had a profound influence on me, and all of Bradbury's writing did. So, so um, he was a big inspiration. I met him a few times, and so he was, and I and I met a number of writers, a very 
well-known writers, very successful writers in my mind's eye. Oh, as I was growing up and as aspiring, Bradbury being one of them. And they were very generous with their time. Um, and they listened to me and listened to my aspirations and encouraged me a lot. And so that's one of the things that uh, I like to pay forward, you know, and really in, in my own teaching uh, as well. So yeah. you got, wait, you got to like interact with Ray Bradbury? Yeah, quite a bit, actually. Yeah. I, I wrote my high school uh, uh, English term paper on him. And coincidentally, he came and spoke at my local community college, and the English instructor that brought him down there was a friend of my older brother's. And so um, I got to meet him, uh, and and I told him about that I'd just done the term paper on him, and he said, oh, okay, great. He said, yes. ginormous head. He was very very gregarious guy and uh he said give me your address give me your address or or no no he 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 handed me his business card he said write me um i'll I'll send you some stuff and i did and he sent back all a, a copy of this play that he had just written and it was all you know handwritten and big big letters with lots of exclamation marks, you know, and uh, Randy, ah, Ray Bradbury, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I still have all that stuff. It just made a huge impression on me. And there was another guy named Robert Block who was a short story writer and a, and a novelist, and he wrote the original novel that Psycho, the movie Psycho, uh, was based on. And he was a delightful man. And, and one more was Richard Matheson, who was, uh, wrote I Am Legend in Duel. He wrote the story Duel that Spielberg made his, one of his first long-form uh, films on for TV, and it was released as theatrically in Europe. But he wrote the short story and the screenplay, and he was a tremendous, tremendous talent. And I went to school with his son. He's actually His son lives here in Portland. Um, but, and I, I met him a couple of times. It wasn't like the kind of relationship I had with Bradbury, but, um, it just, uh, just the body of work really inspired me because he was, he worked, he wrote novels, he wrote short stories, he wrote for television anthology, he wrote some of the great Twilight Zones, and then he wrote long form screenplays. And he was successful in every area and not all those guys, not any other of those guys could do it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so check out those guys, man. They were the, they were the great. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate oh, it. Just like the tip of the iceberg. I know. I feel like we could have kept talking for another couple hours, but yeah. I mean, it's probably good that we ended up here. If we had been at the Still House, I probably would have had a pint of beer, and I would have like you know, blah 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 blah. <laughs> never, never stopped. Yeah. Well, good. I thank you. I had a good time. Oh well, thank you, Nicholas. I appreciate it. You can find Randall at randalljohnson.com. That's J-A-H-N-S-O-N. Also, his movie Dudes is having a DVD release soon, so check it out and help him with the sweet writer's royalties. Music for this episode is by Cambrian Explosion. His drummer once punched a brontosaurus in the head so hard it caused a mass extinction event. Find more about this group of dino slayers at cepdx.bandcamp.com and on Apple iTunes and Spotify. If you like this episode, be sure to hit subscribe and please... Go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review to help others discover why I try. You can find more episodes via Why Try podcast page on Facebook and at nicholaspeel.com. Links to all that in the show notes. Thanks for listening.